0: So here we are in John chapter 4. We're going to dig into verses 7 through 12 today. And um, I'd like for us to just read through that together. Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another. For love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Lord, we ask that you would illumine your word this morning, that you would teach us by your spirit all that you desire for us to understand. Help us not miss a single nuance, Lord. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. So this is the third time that the Apostle John has picked up this theme of loving one another. Uh, The first time we see it uh, in his letter here of 1 John is in chapter 2, verse 10, where where he writes, "The, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. The second time, is chapter three. You can just turn back, probably one page. Maybe it's across the page in your Bible. Verse 11. Uh, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Same message. Um, and now, here in toward the end of chapter four, the apostle begins to unpack more specifically, what this idea of loving one another is really all about. And and he, uh, he gives us a strong encouragement. The word is exhortation. And no, we don't use that word a lot in our vernacular, in our everyday language, do we? Um, but it basically means um, a, a strong encouragement, maybe including a kick in the pants. Maybe a, a, a reminder, a prodding, if you will, of, of uh, our will to engage in, in something more. And that's kind of where, where the Apostle John is at. Uh, we see it in verse 7, right away, uh, let us love one another. And then he moves in verse 11 to, I think, what we could call um, an ethical imperative, a stronger encouragement yet. Now, what is an ethical imperative? We talk like that every day, don't we? Well, think about ethics. Ethics is, is a standard of behavior, it has to do with being on a straight line, being upright, and, and that ethical, that word ethical has to do with how we act. Now, an imperative is something that says you must, you have to, you cannot avoid doing this. This is an absolute must. And that's the next place that John goes in in verse 11. And then in verse 12, we see this wonderful display of evidence. It's the evidence that that the love of God is at work in our lives. So we're going to unpack that as we go. All of this is, is the foundation of maturity maturity in our faith maturity in our walk maturity in our relationships within the body of Christ this it's it's about um, it's about growing up and growing into the people that God desires for us to be now it's important to understand that that um, this is uh, this is not about our self-satisfaction. It's not about uh, simply getting what we desire, what we want. It's about giving preference to one another, and it's a huge, huge step in terms of our maturity as believers. Um, Now, why is this love? Why is this love the duty Of every Christian. Well, John starts with this idea that first and foremost, this love is modeled in Jesus. Look back with me uh, at verse 16 of chapter 3. He writes We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He begins this understanding of what this love is by unpacking the fact that it is self-sacrificial love. Now, he goes on in verse 8 and also 16 of chapter 4 here to describe the fact that God himself is love. It's his identity. And then in verses 10 and 11, he unpacks the fact that God has expressed this love in Jesus himself. And then in verse 12, he goes to this just incredible length to suggest, yes, to teach us that God continues to love in and through us now we have to um, kind of ask the question why does john feel it's so important to talk so much about loving each other why do you suppose that is he's 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 Speaking, yes, indeed to the first century church, but he's speaking to us as well. Why does he go to such length? Yeah, God is love. Absolutely. It doesn't come natural. It's a supernatural love. And it is something that we have to intend to do. You see, he's doing so. He's giving us this strong exhortation, this kick in the pants, if you will, because we don't do it. We don't do it on our own. We don't do it naturally. It is something that God does through us, and we have to step into his provision to be able to do so. Now, he uses the word, the Greek word agape, to talk about this love. We've, we've heard that word, have we not? Many of us have. It's one of uh, three primary words that are used in the New Testament and, and in the Greek language to speak of love. Now, agape is uh, not seen a lot in classical Greek. Uh, the truth is that uh, until the church came along and the writers began to unpack or to, to actually apply an understanding to the word agape that it began to be used with, throughout the church. It's interesting that, that uh, as, they, as they did that, they drew from the Old Testament understanding of what love is. And there's two words in particular that, that come to mind that are, are kind of poured into the word agape. Now, those words are, are, are words that we see uh, in Jesus' response to a, a lawyer uh, a Pharisee lawyer who came to him and tried to trap him with the question, um, Lord, what is or what is the great commandment? And what was Jesus' response? He said, you shall love the Lord your God. And that's one of the words that is found. Ahab is, is that Hebrew word. And it simply means uh, to have affection for honest affection for you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and all your mind this is the great and foremost commandment and this is from Deuteronomy 6 he goes on to say then the second is like it you shall love Ahab your neighbor as yourself that comes from Leviticus chapter 9 now in Deuteronomy 7 Just one, a little bit further down from that original quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We read this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, then it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your forefathers. That word, loving kindness, is the the Hebrew word Chesed. It has. I love that word, don't you? Chesed. Just say it, just for fun. Chesed. Yeah. It it means uh, it's covenant love. It's committed love. It's it's a love decision. And I believe that the the Apostle John is writing this word love now agape with these words in mind um that that scripture goes on he will keep with uh, with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your forefathers he will love that's ahab you and bless you and multiply you so God has this committed love, but he also has this honest affection for us. And that is what the Apostle John pours into this word agape. Let's, let's look very specifically. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is From God. You see that connection? It's all about God's love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And in the in verse seven, he he begins with this um, uh, beautiful. Uh, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a rhyme if you will he he says beloved that's the word that comes from the word agape beloved let us love and that also comes from agape agape toy agape agapomen is 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 the thought there and it's this in that in doing so he's modeling love in fact he's practicing what he's preaching by saying I love you. I love you, beloved. And let me encourage you to love one another. And John's first argument for um, this admonition to love is based on the nature of God. Look at it. He states it twice. For love comes from God in verse 7. And because God is love, in verse 8, for love is from God. The meaning is very clear. It has its origin in God. God is the source of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The experience of of God's love is integral to, to, to what it means to have a relationship with him. Now, since God is the source and all true love starts with him, it stands to reason that everyone who loves either God or their neighbor or their their family, that selfless devotion, they are the ones who are born of God. Now, the truth that God is love, John pulls another deduction from that. But it's a, he flips it around in order to, to help us understand. Verse 8, this is exclusive. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You see he's inverting verse 7 with verse eight, and he makes this point. It's kind of like a mirror image. If we don't experience love, we're not experiencing God. For God is love. Again, it's integral to to who God is. Now, we have to ask this question, Can, can a person have a relationship with God and not love? Have you ever encountered another believer, another Christian who would say, you know, I just have a real hard time loving that person. I can't love, I can't, I I just can't love that person. Well, John would say, well, then wait a second, something is really wrong here. You see... Verse 7 says that if, if we love, we are born of God. You see, to fail to love is like, is, is like having parents that you have no, you don't look like them at all. You're completely foreign to that bloodline. See, if God is love and we are born of God, we're going to manifest his character. It's going to be simply part of who we are. And he not only says we're born of God, but the one who loves knows God. You see, to fail to love is, is to... It, it doesn't make sense if we say we know God. They... They must be together. You see, love, love is the mark of authentic Christian faith. You can, you can put on all sorts of show if you want, but this understanding this self-sacrificial love that is being spoken here if it's not part of your life, the question is, do you really have a relationship with God? Now, John uh, cements his first argument in God's nature. Then he he goes on in verse 9 with a second argument, This this second level of exhortation if you will the God who is love expressed his love by sending his son let's read it together by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him you see God took action God's, God's intention is action. He sent his son. It's what God has done on our behalf. Love is the event in which Jesus entered into history. Love is the person of Jesus. Living alongside humanity, God Almighty. Living alongside humanity. Now, um, this this um, verse ten is a parallel verse to verse nine. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't you love that big theological word right there? That just makes me fall over right now. What does that mean? Propitiation. Well, propitiation means um, to, to appease the penalty, to take the penalty away. And how is it that Jesus did that? He paid the debt of our sin, did he not? But how did he pay it? Did he come up and say, okay, how much is that sin worth? No. Jesus himself is the propitiation. He is the appeasement. He is the one who who is the price. He stepped in and offered himself. That is what it means to be um, the payment. Jesus himself is the payment for our sin. Now, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us by giving himself, we also ought to love one another or since God loved us the, the, the most logical the most reasonable response is for us to do the same to love one another The time, this time the duty of this great love is enforced not merely by some abstract truth that God is love but by the very concrete fact that God showed his love to us by sending his one and only son into the world. Now verse 11 is the amplification, if you will, of verse 7. It's the, the blowing up, the, the, the making more than plain verse, 11, uh, verse 7. The exhortation to love one another. He has moved from this simple exhortation, again, to this ethical imperative. This is what must be done. He's, um, he's created for us what I think we could honestly say is our Christian standard of behavior, our Christian ethic. We are to love out of the fullness of God's love that he has freely given to us. That is what we're called to. Now, we don't earn God's love by, by, our, by our acts of love. Rather, our experience of God's love enables us, it provides the inner motivation for us to love others. The kind, the kind of love that we received is that love that forgives. That causes us to become part of God's family. And that is the love that God enables us to give away. To pour into others. We're not only recipients of this selfless love of God. But we are the conduit of it as well. And the point is this. We're, we are to love outwardly toward others what we received personally. Love in the New Testament isn't an I some lofty ideal. It's not what we quote unquote aim for. It's a it's a relationship. it's an honest relationship um, and it's dynamic, it's growing and and this is also the sense of this this, This thing that John is saying we must do. It has to do with this idea that it's living, it's breathing, it's interactive. It's not a static idea. Now, verse 12 is interesting. He goes to say, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Love is perfected in us. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, he, he starts that, that third argument for loving each other with this statement about the invisibility of God. No one has seen God. Where in the world does that come from? I mean, he's been talking about love, and then suddenly he talks about the invisibility of God. Well, connect the dots with me. Number one, God is invisible, right? That's a, that's a settled statement. Jesus himself, uh, in meeting with the woman at the well, said God is spirit, and those who worship him worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, in, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John, the same writer of this epistle, says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see, and the Apostle Paul echoes that truth as well. Colossians 1, uh, we read, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And and moving on from that paul continues for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness of god to dwell in him so jesus is the revelation of god but god god is so much more than that even if even if god were visible No human being could see him and remain alive. Remember when Moses went up to the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he came down the mountain, and uh, the camp was in disarray, and there was uh, basically an orgy going on, right? It was awful. And they were worshiping this golden calf that they had compelled Aaron to build. And so what does Moses do? He throws down the 10 commandments and and destroys what God has given him. And there's a lot more to that story, but Moses ends up going back up the mountain. Uh God, can you can you redo the 10 commandments for me? I got kind of irritated and they're destroyed now. So Here we have Moses interacting with God. And in that moment, Moses says, I pray you show me your glory. And God says in response, I myself will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I show compassion. But God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. The apostle Paul echoes that reality in his letter, his first letter to Timothy, chapter six, we read, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen. Okay, so what does God's invisibility have to do with love? Let's connect the dots. When we read the whole verse together, the sentence begins to make sense. You see, our loving one another is the evidence to other people that God is real. That God lives in us. You can talk about theology. You can talk about God's God's attributes all you want. You can can lecture on systematic theology. You can present some great um, apologetic argument, defenses for the existence of God. And your listeners, those who are listening, may still not encounter God. But when those same people see God's love lived out in our lives, they encounter the living God. The invisible God becomes visible through us. Consider that. John is saying you're able to reveal God. You, us, we're able to reveal God, to put him on display. You see, love is action, and the credibility of our words will be measured by our action. How many of us know that? Yeah. Actually, loving one another is the proof That God lives in us. But John doesn't stop there. Look at the rest of the verse. Loving each other means not only that God lives in us, but that his love is perfected in us. Is he crazy? No. Think about it. His love is perfected in us. That word perfected means to complete, to accomplish, to fulfill, to mature. John uses this word perfected with the word love, three more times in the following verses. We're going to hear about that in the near future. And he's not speaking about moral perfection. He's not speaking about flawlessness. No. He's speaking about the fact that this is God's intent to complete, to mature, When we practice the love that God has given us in our relationships with one another, it comes to its intended end. The unseen God who once revealed in his son now reveals himself in his people when we love one another. And his love, take note, look at at it, look at it closely. His love is perfected in us. It's not about what we can work up. It's his love that is perfected. We, I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. It's God's love that John says is perfected in us. A lot of commentators um, have a hard time with this. They want to say, well, maybe, maybe what John is really saying is that um, the word his love is really not speaking specifically of God's love. It's more about our love for God, or or it's a godlike love that we we bring to the table. But look at the paragraph. The whole paragraph is speaking about God's love. And that's precisely what he says we can't ignore the majesty of that statement God's love which originates in himself verse 7 and 8 and was manifested in his son verses 9 and 10 is made complete comes to its intended end in us his people God's love is perfected; it's completed when it's reproduced, when it's reproduced in us and among us. God desires—think about it. God desires that we would be like Him, and we're never more like Him when, than when we are loving others. This is. This is the mark of spiritual maturity the evidence the evidence of genuine christian faith our spiritual maturity isn't measured by our age it's not measured by by how long we've been a christian it's not measured by by how long we've been a part of the church or how much we serve. Christian spiritual maturity is measured by how we love one another. Jesus says, By this all men will know. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So when John's says God's love is being perfected in us, he's saying that God's love, again, reaches its intended goal. When those who God has loved actually practice that same love toward one another. And he's also saying that our love for God, our love for God is complete only when we love others. Did I really say that? Our love for God is only complete when we are loving others. So we have these three truths about the love of God. and. And John exhorts us with this, because God is love, verses 8 and 9, because God loved us in sending Jesus, nine and, 10 and 11, and because when we love one another, his, may, his love is made complete in verse 12. So I have to ask this question again, why does John spend so much time talking about this love? and exhorting us strongly in it it's because we don't do it we are so easily wrapped up in what we want and and so easily lose sight of loving others we we spend so much time working on our own personal satisfaction. And we forget and we push out to the margins the call to give preference to one another. Would you take your Bible? If you don't have a Bible, there's likely one un, uh, under the seat in front of you. I'd like for you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We know this passage is is um, um, an iconic passage in the scripture. This what what we I, I speak of it often that that Christ did not count equality with God, something to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. That that is here in this chapter, but the prelude to that is this. Would you read it with me? Chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ. If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, what's he saying? If there's any sign of life in your Christian faith, make my joy complete, verse two, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I don't know about you, but that, that rattles me to the core. How much time do we spend focused on our own personal interests? Desires, our own personal interests. When it comes to being the church, we've had these discussions over and over about, about what we like and what we don't like. Whether it's whether it's um, whether it's the style of worship or the the uh, the style of the teaching. And we get wrapped up in our own personal desires, our own personal preferences, our own wish list. And we forget to yield to others. And I have to say that when we do that, what we end up doing is we walk in perpetual immaturity. Think about it. What does a baby what does a baby start with? It's all about them, right? The whole house is about the baby. And as they grow up, as they grow up and, and move into adolescence, it's still all about them. And it's one Emotional drama moment after another. But we're called to walk in maturity, and it's not about us. Turn with me to the left over to Romans, Romans chapter 12. Paul unpacks in Romans 12 this, the, the understanding of how the body is to work and the, the gifts. That God gives to the church. And then in verse 9. Verse 9 he writes. Chapter 12 verse 9. And I'm asking you to turn to these. Because if they're not highlighted in your Bible. You need to highlight them. Let love be without hypocrisy. What would hypocritical love look like? Hypocritical love looks like, hey, how you doing? And they begin to tell you how they're doing. And you say, well, great, regardless of what they say, and we'll see you later. Hypocritical love doesn't take time to actually connect. You see, love requires investment. And it's not just investment with the people that we like to be around. It's investment with others that may not be in our circle. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And finally, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You know this chapter well. It um, It is clearly an iconic passage of scripture. And it's real easy for us to just list off this the, the characteristics of love, but let's ponder them together. Think about the people around you, the people you know, the people that you don't know. Love is patient. That means you are worth the time. Love is kind. That means I'm not going to engage with you in a way that is going to hurt you. I'm thinking about what will benefit you. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. See what's going on here? It's not about self. Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. If it doesn't seek its own, what does it seek? Others, the good of others. Love is not provoked. Some of your texts may say love is not easily angered or easily offended. Let me ask you this. How many of us and maybe friends that you know have made big changes in your lives because you were offended? I don't think we realize how often we make big choices in our lives based upon Based upon offense. And think about that word offense. We put up offense. And we say it's for our self-protection. But what we do is we keep people out. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Suffered. forgiveness is costly but essential love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures endures all things Love never fails. Skip down to verse 11. And I'm going here because the Apostle John says, love is perfected or completed, brought to maturity in us. You see, we are expected to grow. We're not expected to be in perpetual immaturity. When I was a child, Paul writes, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. What does that say? What happens to a child? How do they think? How do they reason? It's all about When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. What's he saying? I don't know it all now. I can't put all the pieces together now, but someday I will. God will reveal it, and in the meantime... I'm simply going to walk in obedience. Verse 13, but now abide faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Would you stand with me? going to ask the worship team to come, and as they come, we're going to sing a song that I hope will simply be an invitation to our hearts, because what is at stake here is allowing ourselves, not allowing ourselves, to to be intentional in allowing Jesus to make his presence known in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, this exhortation is, um, it's piercing. It's piercing for all of us. And I pray, Jesus, that by your grace and in your mercy, you you would put the specifics together for us. We've spoken in generalities here this morning in many respects, but every single one of us knows that there are specific places in our lives where we can move away from ourself and begin to love others as you have loved us. We ask by your spirit that you would speak to us. And Lord, that what the result would be, would be Jesus more clearly seen in our lives, more clearly revealed in our behavior. Lord, not just what we, not Not just what we do as a compulsory um, response of guilt, perhaps, but an honest affection poured out to others and a committed love that will not walk away. Give us Jesus.